0: Now, let's take a look. We now have been able to find 50 Old Testament people have been found and corroborated by extra-biblical evidence. Let's look and see what the experts say. And to do that, we need to look and see what they're quoting. And I'm going to quote their quotes. These are well-known archaeologists. Let's take a look and see what they say. G.E. Wright states this, We shall ne- probably never prove that Abram really existed. But what we can prove is that his life and times, as reflected in stories about him, fit perfectly within the early second millennium, but imperfectly within any later period. How can he say that? Well, he's saying that because of the Nuzi tablets and the Mari tablets and the Ebla tablets. All these tablets that are found in Syria and Mesopotamia and the Euphrates Valley not only support the historicity of the Abrahamic story, but put them in the right century and in the right place. That's why G.E. Wright is saying that. Until we found these tablets, we didn't know how accurate the the Old Testament was or the book of Genesis was or the Mosaic account about what Abraham was doing. Sir Frederick Kenyon, well-known archaeologist, mentions the evidence of archaeology has been to re-establish the authority for the Old Testament and likewise to augment its value by rendering it more intelligible through a fuller knowledge of its background and setting. William F. Albright, a renowned archaeologist, says this, The excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. What discovery is he talking about? Das is the third stela. The hinges there on Balawat the Tiglapilla is the third mural that is found there that mentions even the nickname of Tiglathpileser the Sargon uh, tablet the uh, mural that shows not only Sargon the second but Sennacherib the 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 Taylor prism that shows how accurate second kings 19 is and Isaiah 37 and also The Tidhakab statue that is now there in the British Museum. Article after article, artifact after artifact, all the tablets, the Nuzi, the Mari, the Ebla, the Amarna. Oh, I forgot about the Amarna tablets. The Amarna tablets. The Amarna tablets which were discovered in Amarna in Egypt, written in 1394. And they talk about these people, these stateless people, written by the governor in in, uh, Canaan to the uh, Pharaoh living there in Amarna, which was the capital of Egypt at that time, said there were these stateless people who would come down from the hills and they would attack the cities, but they'd leave some of the cities alone. Now stop and ask, who was living at the time of 1394? Joshua was living at that time, wasn't he? Joshua. What was Joshua doing? He was up in the hills coming down, attacking these cities, Jericho and the rest. And remember the Midianites, the i I'm sorry, the Ibionites who come to him with dirty shoes and dusty clothes. And they say, we are from a far distance. Can we have an alliance with you? He has an alliance with them. And then they say, well, actually, we're right next door. Too late. He's already shaking their hands. So therefore, he has to uh, acknowledge and uh, uh, adhere to his alliance. So he leaves them alone, exactly corroborating what we see in the book of Joshua exactly corroborating, sorry, what we see in the Amarna tablets. Can you see then why Miller Burroughs and uh, uh, William F. Albright says these things? It's these artifacts that are corroborating almost exactly what we see. Now, the British Museum has always been one of the most skeptical of institutions. I like to know what they say about all this. There next to the Amarna tablets, if you were to go, you will see that they have a little uh, tablet in itself, a uh, little reference to these tablets, and they mention these roving Canaanite people who come from the hills coming down to raid the cities in the plains, and they say these stateless Canaanites are probably the biblical Hebrews. What in the world is the British Museum admitting that these are the Hebrews? Why have they come to this conclusion? Further on the wall is a mural that they have put up, that they have erected just around two or three years ago, that talks about the story of David. The story of David right out of our Bible. They have paraphrased the story of David right out of our Bible. Now, that astounded me when I saw that. The British Museum, the most skeptical of institution, admits that David did exist, admits that this is historical, admits that this happened. It reminds me of what Jasper said. He said, Jasper said, remember that these great thinkers and these great philosophers and these great scientists, they're all trying to find that that pillar of knowledge and they're climbing that hill trying to get up to the pinnacle and sooner or later they're going to make it to the top and when they get there they'll find the theologians waiting for them. They're already there. Why? Because of all these artifacts that are corroborating what the Bible is already saying. No wonder... Uh, G.E. Wright, Sir Frederick Kenyon, William F. Albright are saying this. Let's see what Miller Burrell says out of Yale. He states, On the whole, archaeological work has unquestionably strengthened confidence in the reliability of the scriptural record. Joseph Free, another renowned archaeologist, confirms that while thumbing through the book of Genesis, he mentally noted that each of the 50 chapters are either illuminated or confirmed by some archaeological discovery, and that this would be true for most of the remaining chapters of the Bible, both the Old and the Old and the New Testament. Nelson Gluck, a Jewish Reform scholar and archaeologist, probably gives us the greatest support for the Bible when he states, to date, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a single properly understood biblical statement. Look at that. These are the men that have spent their whole life studying our Bible. These are the men who have been skeptical themselves. If they have come to this conclusion, why should we complain? Why should we disagree? What about the New Testament? What are you going to do with the New Testament? And this is the part of the the Bible that the Muslims have basically uh, targeted the most, challenged the most. Why? Because there's so much in the New Testament that contradicts the Quran. They've got to target it. They've got to challenge it. So have the skeptics got to challenge it. And they have been targeted right, left, and center. Oh, they made all kinds of accusations. Well, let, before we get into those accusations, let's look and see. And let's do the same historical test that we've done just to the Old Testament. Let's look for the names, places, dates, and events. The same thing we looked in the Old Testament, we need to also apply to the New Testament. And the most historical book in the New Testament is the book of Acts. It's a book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a book of the Acts of the early church. It is the book of the history of the early church, is it not? So let's go to the book of Acts, and let's ask it whether or not it is historical. There have been lots and good number of challenges against the author of the book of Acts because of the, some of the words he used, some of the people he talked about, some of the events that he mentioned there in the book of Acts. For instance, there was always a reference, there was always a problem with the reference in Acts chapter 14, verse 6, to the fact that Lystra and Derbe were in Lyconia. Cicero writes that these two cities were in Iconium. Whoever wrote the book of Acts got them in the wrong place. Now there has been a monument that has been discovered that puts both Lystra and Derby in Lyconia and not in Iconium. It looks like Cicero is wrong and the book of Acts is right. Erastus was a Corinthian treasure according to Romans 16, verse 23. Now, hold on a minute. Erastus is not a Corinthian treasure according to many of the historians. That was until a pavement was found which supports it in 1929 that supports that Erastus was the name of a Corinthian uh, treasure supporting Romans sixteen twenty-three. The author of the book of Acts, we know he's Luke, mentions that Poly- Polytarch was a civil authority in Thessalonica. Now, this was always doubted because there's no reference, there has never been any reference to any Polytarch was a civil authority in Thessalonica. We see that in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. Now, in the last century, 19 inscriptions have been found supporting the fact that Polytarchs were civil authorities. Five of the inscriptions mention that they were authorities in Thessalonica, proving that the book of Acts is correct. Luke was correct. He mentions that a praetor was a Philippian ruler. Now, according to the historians, a Philippian ruler should have been demur. That would have been more accurate. Now they have found that Praetar was the earlier name. Demir was a later name that was applied to them. The Praetor is the earlier name, and it's the name that was used in the first century, proving that the book of Acts is, is more accurate, but also starts to date the book of Acts. But we can get even more, more uh, clear than that. If you want to date the book of Acts, probably the best thing to do is to go to Act, Acts chapter 18, verse 12. There it mentions that Gallo is a proconsul. Now that has always been disputed, because Pliny, the great historian Pliny, d- mentions Gallo, but never mentions once that he's a proconsul which seems to suggest that whoever wrote the book of acts got this wrong possibly because the book of acts would have been written in the 2nd century and redacted back to the 1st century will go with pliny because he's closer to the event that's what the historians have always said that was until the delphi inscription was discovered the delphi inscription mentions that the book of that uh, that gallo was a proconsul for one year and one year alone in 52 ad now what does that suggest Well, that tells me that whoever wrote the book of Acts had been writing around 52 AD. We now can date the book of Acts to around 52 AD. Christ died in 33 AD. That's just within 20 years of Christ's death, you have the book of Acts written. Now, that's always been a huge accusation of the the New Testament, that it's written much, much too late to be considered to be authentic. But here we have the book of Acts written within 52 AD. We can get even more specific than that because there's events that happened to the early church that are not written in the book of Acts. For instance, the martyrdom of James, the brother of of Jesus. He was martyred in 62 AD. That's not mentioned in the book of Acts. The martyrdom of Paul in 64 AD. That's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Acts. The martyrdom of Peter in 65 AD, that's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Or the insurrection by the Jews there in Jerusalem in 66 AD. Or the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Every one of these events had a huge impact on the early church. Why are they not referenced in the book of Acts? Because they were, happened after the book of Acts was written. Which then suggests that the book of Acts would have been written between 52 AD and 62 AD. Are you following me? Now we know that Luke wrote the gospel of Luke before the book of Acts. That would mean it had to be written somewhere before 52 AD, along with Matthew. They were written both together. Mark would have been written even before that. The letters of Paul would have been written within 15 years of Christ's death. So you have all of Paul's letters, plus three of the Gospels, written within 20 to 30 years of Christ's death. Why is that important? I'll tell you why that's important. It's important because it puts the majority of the New Testament... Within 20 to 30 years of Christ's death, and it has them written while the disciples were still living in Jerusalem. They were the eyewitnesses to all these events. Therefore, they could either dispute or reject or accept that which is written. Even Luke, he didn't know of any of this. He never knew Jesus Christ. Remember, he says right there in the first three verses of the first chapter of Luke, O Theophilus, I've taken it upon myself. Basically, I am writing what you've told me. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's basically written it for the disciples. He's writing their story for them. So it was written while they could read it, before they were thrown out of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's why it's so important. Now, let's do a comparative here real quickly. The Muslims don't like that, but then I'll ask them, take a look and ask, what is it you have about your prophet? Where is it you get your material for your prophet? Well, we all know this, that the, uh, the biography of Muhammad is the Siddha. That's called the Siddha of Muhammad. Well, we've got the same co- correspondence in the New Testament. The biography of Jesus would be the Gospel account of Jesus, the black letters part of the, of the Gospel account. There's the Siddha of Jesus. The sayings of Muhammad would be the Hadith. Well, we have the Hadith of Jesus, don't we not? The s- sayings of Jesus would be the red-letter part, red part of the Gospels, right? If you have a red-letter Bible. And then you have the tafsir, which would be the commentaries that explain what Muhammad said and did. Well, we also have the tafsir in the New Testament. The tafsir would be basically Paul's letters. He explains what Jesus said and did. So the tafsir of Jesus is Paul's letters. That's written within 15 years of Christ's death. And then you have the last genre of the traditions called the Tahrik, which would be the history. Well, the Book of Acts is as historical as you can get. So there's the Tahrik of the early church, which would be the Book of Acts, written, uh, we now know, between 52 and 62 AD. So we have the Tafsir, the Tahrik, the Hadith, and the Siddha of Jesus, all written within 20 to 30 years of Christ's death. We have the Siddha, the Tafsir, the Hadith, and the Tahrik of Muhammad, written into two to 300 years after Muhammad's death. Which is more authoritative, 20 to 30 years or two to 300 years? <laughs> what a comparative. Thank God we've got 20 to 30 years for everything. It's all there while the disciples were still living in Jerusalem. That's why I love the New Testament. Oh, they may not like that, but then they They got an awful lot to answer for. We don't have the problems the Muslims have. Thank God they were. Now, here's the other question. How do we know what we have in our hands today are those what were originally written down? That's the big question. Why? Because we don't have the originals of any of them. For one very good reason. When they wrote them down, they wrote them on papyri. Papyri are those leaves, those interlocking leaves that they hammered out and they dried so they could make a a material that they could write on, and those disintegrated very quickly. Well, within a hundred years, they would disintegrate. They would just dry up and crinkle. If you come to the British Library, uh, we have examples of papyri there, fragments of papyri. And if you pick them up in your hands, they just crinkle in your hands. We wouldn't expect any of the papyri to exist till today. They would, have, they, would have, they would start deteriorating within a hundred years. So copies need to be made immediately, and copies of copies of copies of copies. You have whole generations of copies of papyri for the New Testament. So what do we have? Well, let's look at some of the things that we do have. Because we do have lots of manuscripts of the New Testament. We've got about 5,300 Greek manuscripts. We've got about another 10,000 Latin Vulgates, another 9,000 other language. You add them all up together, we have about 26,000 manuscripts for the New Testament alone. That's an awful lot of manuscripts. Are they very early? No. Only 230 of them, either full manuscripts or portions thereof, predate the 6th century. And it's those 230 that we've spent most of our time, the experts are spending most of their time looking at, because they're the most authoritative, they're the most authentic. Now, historians don't like that. They say they're much, much too late. Let's just stop and ask, and let's hold on a minute, and let's do a comparative. Historians may not like that, but then why is it they like all the secular manuscripts? See, because there's no, I never hear any Muslims ever complain about Herodotus or Thucydides. Herodotus and Thucydides who were writing in the 5th century BC. When is it we get the earliest copies for any of their writings? We don't get the earliest copy. The earliest copies we have for any of their writings is not till 900 AD. That is 1300 years later. Yet nobody disputes Herodotus or Thucydides. We have Aristotle, the philosopher. Everybody reads Aristotle. He was living in the 4th century B.C. Yet the earliest copy we have for his material is not to 1100 A.D. That's 1,400 years later, and we only have five copies of it. We could go on. Caesar's history. Written in the second century BC, the earliest copy we have for Caesar's history is not till 980. That is a thousand years later, and we only have ten copies of it. Pliny, the great historian, Pliny that I've already mentioned tonight, Pliny the historian who is writing, and about the same time that the Gospel accounts or the, the New Testament was being written, excuse me, the earliest copy we have of any of Pliny's writing is not till 850 AD. That is 750 years later, and we only have seven references to him. Yet nobody disputes Herodotus or Thucydides or Aristotle or Caesar or Pliny or Suetonius or Tacitus or any of these other historians. No one ever disputes whether they're authentic, yet we don't have any of them before the 9th century A.D. Everybody wants to dispute the New Testament documents. Yet look how early some of our documents are. The John Ryland's manuscript, which are fragments from the book of John from 130 A.D. That's the 2nd century. They're in Switzerland. If you come to England, up in Manchester, we have the John, John Ryland's manuscript. I'm sorry, I already talked about John Ryland's manuscript. That is in Manchester. It's the bottom of papyrus, which is in Switzerland. Both of them are portions of the book of John from the second century. If you go over to Ireland, to Dublin, you get the Chester Beatty manuscripts, where are the four gospels, the book of Acts, and the book of Revelation, all from the third century AD. And then if you come to London, oh, come to London. I love to show you what we have in London. For those of you who don't know, I live in London. And I go to London all the time. I go to one particular place called the Ridblat Gallery there in the British Library. If you come to the Ridblat Gallery, I'm going to show you two of the oldest Bibles in the world, two of the oldest New Testaments, and also one which is the Old and New Testament. The Sinaiticus is right there. The Sinaiticus, the entire New Testament, written in Koinonia Greek, written in the Uncial, capitalized Greek text. There it is from the 4th century A.D found there in Mount Sinai by Tischendorf when he was going through the Sinai Peninsula, came into the mount, uh, monastery there in Mount Sinai and saw that they were going to burn it. They had it in a waste paper basket because they had no idea of the, its importance. He rescued it, brought it back to England. They sent it up to Russia. They dated it. They brought it back to England. Now their English government now owns it. They have bought it. And it is the oldest New Testament anywhere in the world, the entire New Testament from 320 to 325 A.D. Fourth century. Predates the Quran by 300 years. Beautiful. Written not on papyrus, written on parchment, on gazelle skin. It's pristine. You can go see it for yourself. Right next to it is the Alexandrinus, the entire Old and New Testament. There it is, written in Uncial Greek from the 5th century. The only other book that is as close to that is the Vaticanus in Rome. The Vaticanus, which is there in the Vatican, which is the Old and New Testament written from the mid-4th century. So you have the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, and the Alexandrinus, three of the great metropolitan codices of the New Testament and the Old Testament written in the 4th and 5th century. That's three to 200 years before the Quran. That's what kind of manuscript evidence we have. But that's not all. We've got more than that. You want to hear more, don't you? What else do we have to support that? Well, we have the eyewitness accounts, but we also have the hostile accounts. The hostile accounts. These are the writers that were writing, the historians that were writing in the same period or immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they do talk about the crucifixion. That's what I like about because the Muslims dispute the crucifixion. They don't like the crucifixion. So you have men like Thallus, Thallus, who is a Greek historian who was basically debating with another man named Phlegon. And the two of them were debating about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in 52 A.D. Roughly 20 years after Christ's death, you have these two Greek historians debating that at the time that Jesus died, when he was on the cross, the earth shook and the sun went dark. 20 years after Christ's death. Now, they didn't worship Christ, they didn't follow Christ, but that's not what we need them for. We need to know whether or not they agreed that Christ died on the cross. Tacitus, who absolutely hated Christians, he had nothing good to say about a Christian. He was a Roman historian. He was living in about eighty and writing about eighty to eighty four A.D. He not only mentions that Jesus died, he also mentioned that when he died, he died during the reign of Tiberius under Pontius Pilate, which exactly corroborates Luke chapter three verse one, proving that it happened at the right time, at the right place, with the right person. But Tacitus had nothing good to say about Christians. In fact. He even mentioned that the Christian, these, or this horrendous group of people, believed that this Jesus was a God, proving the divinity of Jesus as far as the Christians were concerned as early, as early as the late first century. Josephus, a Hebrew historian, writing at the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, he mentions not only the death of Jesus, but he also this, has a curious reference there to the, to the fact that the Christians believed that Jesus rose again. Now, the historians hate that. They don't like the reference to Josephus. They say, we cannot trust it because it's written so late. Now, here they are telling Josephus that he cannot be trusted because the material is written so late, but they don't have any problem with trusting Thucydides or Herodotus or any of these other characters whose writings don't even come to us until the 9th and 10th and 11th century AD. Can you see there's a double standard here? They don't want to trust any historical writer when he writes about Jesus, but they'll trust everything else he says. To me, there's an agenda there. There's a bias built into that. And I don't buy it. Historians have to do better than that. If they're not going to accept Josephus, if they're not going to accept the New Testament writers, then they're not going to accept any of the writers. You have to throw them all away because none of the other writers even appear on this world stage until the 9th century AD. You have to be careful what about historians, what their agenda is. But here you have a Greek historian, a Roman historian, a Hebrew historian, all of them admitting that Jesus died on the cross. They didn't accept who Jesus was or what he came to do. We're not asking them to do that. All we're asking them is, did the event happen? Did it happen at the right place, at the right time, with the right person? That's all we're asking, the historical question. What else can we go to? Well, see, not only do we have the manuscripts, over 26,000, we also have versions within those manuscripts. In fact, we have over 19,000 ver- uh, different translations in 11 different languages. We have Latin over ten thousand Latin Vulgates that begin to appear in the second century. we have almost three hundred and fifty Syriac translations that begin to appear in the mid second century. We have one hundred Coptic translations from the third and fourth century. We have over two thousand five hundred Armenian translations from the fifth century. We have Gothic translations from the sixth century i'm sorry from the fourth century. we have Georgian and Slavic translations over four thousand. Georgian and Slavic translations from the 5th century. We have over 2,000 Ethiopic translations from the 6th century. And Nubian translations from this, And it goes on and on. Over 11 different languages, 19,000 translations. Now stop and think what the Muslims are telling us. They've said that we've gone through and we have corrupted all of this. We have changed it along the way. If we had wanted to do that, we'd have to go to every one of those 19,000 translations in all 11 languages, change them all so they're consistent, and nobody know about it. Can you see what they're suggesting? Now, that would be a miracle. The fact that they are all there and they are all consistent and they all agree with the manuscript evidence shows how authoritative our New Testament is. But that's still not enough for me. We have something else besides that. How about the lectionaries? 2,135 lectionaries written in the 6th century. The early church in the sixth century, what they would do is they would come and they would have, do liturgy during the church service. And what they would do with their liturgy basically is they would just repeat scripture. And it was this repeated scripture that they would use that is written down that we have available to us today, over 2,000 of them that predate the Quran by 100 years. And there they all corroborating the manuscript evidence, corroborating all the translation, proving that it had not been changed along the way. But there's still something better than all of this, something better than the manuscripts and the translations, and the hostile witnesses, and the lectionaries, I've I've saved the the best to last. When the gospel writers were writing their material down, and when Paul was writing these down, they would disseminate these out to the different churches around the diaspora. And as they started reading these in the different churches, there were people in these churches that started disputing them. We do know that the Gnostic the Gnostic sectarian group did not like the fact that God could be a man or that God could be a person. There were other groups like the Docetists and the Coloridians and the Monarchists who did not like the idea that God could enter time and space and take on human form. And so they started disputing against who Jesus Christ was. And these writings of theirs start to appear in the second century. Now, the early church fathers knew that they had to confront these sectarian writings. They knew they had to confront the Gnostic writers especially. But they did a very clever thing. Rather than sit there and dispute them philosophically like we do in debate, they did a much more simple thing. They just took scripture and wrote it out. They just took gospel accounts, word for word, verse for verse, chapter for chapter, disputing whatever the Gnostic writers were saying. They just reiterated what the gospel account said. They just reiterated what Paul said. And they wrote it out, and they sent these letters to the different churches. Now, why did they do that? Well, for them, as far as they were concerned, the canonical text was all that was needed to basically prove their point. But see, I think God had them do that for a very good purpose. Because he knew that this was going to be disputed in the 20th and the 21st century. He knew that we were going to have to prove the authenticity of the manuscript evidence. He knew that there was going to have to be something better than the manuscript itself in order to corroborate what the manuscript said. And that's why I think he had the early church fathers write these down. Write these verses down, verse by verse by verse so that we could start amalgamating and collecting them. Two men, Doc Sir David Dalrymple and Dr. Jean Burgon, have done just that. They have amalgamated, they have pulled together as many of these early church fathers' quotations as they could, and they've come up with over 86,000 quotations. Over 86,000 quotations they've been able to pull together. But then they wanted to find out how many of these quotations predate the 4th century. How many of these quotations predate the Sinaiticus and the Alexandrinus and the Vaticanus, the earliest entire New Testaments that we have? How many of them predate the Council of Nicaea? Why? Because many people believe it is at the Council of Nicaea that the canon of the Bible was created. It was not created at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was not convened to create any canon. It was convened basically to dispute against the Arians, those who believed that Jesus was only a man. Athanasius was given that responsibility It just so happened that they listed the 27 books that they were going to use as their authority. So it was basically there to show what was already accepted in the church. These were well accepted. And the reason we know that is by looking at their quotations. The quotations always accepted these 27 books. And they always use only these 27 books to dispute against the sectarian writings. So they wanted to find out how many of these quotations predated the 4th century. Predated 325. And they came up with these. They came up with over 2,400 quotes from Clement of Alexandria in the 2nd century. Or they came up with over 7,000 quotes from Tertullian himself in the mid-2nd century. From the church father, Justin Martyr, they came up with 330 quotes. From Uranius in the late 2nd century, they came up with 1,800 quotes. Oregon, almost 18,000 quotes. Hippolytus. 1,300 quotes. Eusebius, over 5,000 quotes. When you add up all these quotations, you come up with 36,000 quotations. 36,000 quotations that predate the 4th century. 36,000 quotations that predate the 4th century. But that's not good enough. They wanted to find out how much of the New Testament these encapsulated. So they started putting these quotations in chronological order, starting with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. And you know what they found? When they put it in chronological order, they found that they could reproduce all 27 books of the New Testament. All 27 books of the New Testament, except for 11 insignificant verses. Do you see what we're saying here? There are over 5,000 verses in the New Testament. Just with these quotations, they could reproduce the entire 27 books of the New Testament, from Matthew all the way to Revelation, from before the 4th century. Oh, you, you, you. What that tells me is that we can throw away the manuscripts. We don't need them. Throw all 26,000 away. We don't need them. We can still reproduce the New Testament. We can throw away the 19,000 translations. Throw away the 2,135 lectionaries. Throw away all this manuscript evidence and just come back to the early church fathers' quotations and still reproduce the entire New Testament, all 27 books from before the Council of Nicaea, except for 11 insignificant verses. Ah, that makes me happy. I hope that's making you happy too. There is no other piece of literature, both secular or secular, can make the claim I've just made. That's how authoritative our New Testament is. Be proud of your New Testament. Don't ever apologize for the New Testament. Not with this kind of material. Not with this kind of evidence. Now, we need to just do one more thing. What I want to do is look at its further evidence for the Bible. We're going to end with this part here. We're going to try to go through it as quick as possible because I see I've already done an hour and 15 minutes. Let's try to finish this off in the next 15 minutes. Let, what other evidence do we have for the Bible to prove its authenticity? We've looked at the historical evidence of the Old Testament. We looked at the manuscript evidence, archaeological evidence for the Old Testament. We looked at the manuscript evidence, the documentary evidence for the New Testament. I don't think anybody in this room it has any doubt that there is a lot of corroboration, historical corroboration. We have done our homework. It's great to know we've done our homework. But is there any other evidence? we can look at, and there is. We can look at the fulfilled prophecies. Why? The fulfilled prophecies are very essential because it showed just how authoritative the internal evidence is from within. And there are two people, especially both Moses and Isaiah, that have the most fulfilled prophecies. We can see prophecy after prophecy that was fulfilled almost the next day, such as the defeat of the Egyptian in Exodus 14. That we see a reference of a prophecy that was fulfilled almost immediately. The holding back of the sun in Isaiah 38 by Isaiah himself. The, by God himself under, the, under the, uh, uh, the calling of Isaiah. Or Sennacherib's route that we just talked about earlier in Isaiah 37 of the 185,000. That's a fulfillment almost immediately of a prophecy. Some of the prophecy was fulfilled much later, 150 to 200 years later, sometimes centuries later, and sometimes even today. Such as the exile of the the Israelites to Babylon that we see in Isaiah chapter 39, verse 6 and 7. Or the blessings and curses of Israel in Deuteronomy 28, also chapter 30. Or the fall of Babylon that we talked about earlier which we find prophesied in Isaiah 13, verse 1 and verse 19 and 20. That we know happened in 539 B.C. Or the return from exile that we see in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 and 12. We know that that happened because of what happened in Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have lots of these fulfilled prophecies that gives the authority, internal authority, for its authenticity. You also have the harmony, the fact that it's unity and harmony all the way through. Here is a book that was written over 1,500 years by over 30 authors in three different languages on three different continents, yet it has the same story right through. There is no inconsistency. All the Muslims have tried to find all kinds of inconsistency. When I did a debate a number of years ago, back about 10 years ago, uh, Shabir Ali, the great debater out of Toronto, handed me a pamphlet which said 101 clear contradictions of the Bible. Well, I looked at those contradictions and I, along with four of the friends, we went together and we put our heads together and we came up with references and answers to every one of them. The next debate I had with him at Leicester University, I think it was in 1998, I handed him another pamphlet in honor and it says 101 cleared up contradictions of the Bible you can go in, online and pull it down at debate.org.uk. It's right there for you to use. 101 cleared up contradictions of the Bible. What we found is that the Muslims have looked at the Bible, trying to find any contradiction in these, in these 66 books, and every time they found a contradiction, they were easy to show that they were not contradicted. Just sometimes they just needed the, need the verse before, or the verse after, or read the chapter before, or look at the word, or understand what the author was trying to say. They made 15 basic errors all the way through, and we showed everyone one of them. That's why you don't need to memorize all the answers. Go up on our paper, pull it down, give it to your Muslim friend, and next time they throw you a a pamphlet like that. Thank God we don't have these contradictions. Thank God it all fits. Thank God it all makes sense. But you would not expect that over 1,500 years, would you? Can you see how beautiful, harmonious, and unified it is? We also know that it has amazing circulation. This book has been printed and sent out to more people than any other book in history. It has been translated in over 2,000 languages. Every two weeks, a new translation comes online. 93% of the entire world's population now can read the New Testament in their own mother tongue. No other piece of literature can make that claim. They say within another 60 years, every known language will have the New Testament written and translated. What about its wisdom and high moral teaching? I find it fascinating when I talk to people around the world. I lived in Japan. I remember talking in Japan back in the 1970s. I used to ask my students there in Japan, why is it that you don't follow Shinto law? And they said, no, no, we don't follow Shinto law. We follow the law that was given to us by MacArthur, by the Americans after the Second World War. And I say, why? Because it's a lot more just. I say, do you realize that the law that you're following is basically biblical law? Well, it doesn't matter. It's a lot better than the Shinto law. I remember living in, in Senegal in w- West Africa for five years. My wife and I lived in Senegal, and there was a population of ninety-two percent Muslim population. And I remember asking them, "Why is it you don't follow Islamic law, Sharia law?" They said, "No, no, no. We follow Western law. We follow French law. The French gave us this in their colony." I said, "Well, yes, but you've been free now for fifty years. Why don't you go back to Islamic law?" They said, "No, no, no, no. We don't want to start cutting off hands of, of thieves. We don't want to start slicing off the heads of the unbelievers. We don't want to start uh, beating our wives." French law is a lot more just. I said, do you realize that French law is based on biblical principles, on Judeo-Christian law? They had no idea. And everywhere you go, I talk, I say this to my Muslim friend all the time. Why is it that whenever you go around the world, when you look at Muslim countries, there are very few countries that apply Islamic law. They cannot apply the Hudu laws because they are barbaric. They are meant for the 7th century. Yet Judeo-Christian law is universal. And how do I know that? Well, one of the best documents you can look in the world today that is the most universal secular document that is accepted by the most number of people around the world is what we call the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Take a look at the UN Declarations of Human Rights, and you will see exactly what I'm saying. The UN Declaration of Human Rights is the most universal secular document that is used as a standard today for morality. And yet there are 21 articles. But when you look at the 21 articles, you will see almost every one of them is biblical. But there are a number of articles that Muslims cannot accept, even though they've signed up to them. Let me give you some examples. Article 4, no slavery is permitted. Now stop and think. Many of my Muslim friends say this is, this is uniquely a Christian problem. I say it is. That's interesting. Long before the Europeans got involved in the slave trade, the, the Arabs were involved with it for over a thousand years beforehand. In fact, when the Europeans finally got to Africa and started getting slaves, who do you think sold in the slaves? It was the Arabs that sold the slaves. What's more, there has been a man named Dr. John Azuma, who has now done a doctorate at Birmingham, who has looked at the slave trade in Africa. He's from Ghana himself, and he's gone over and he's found that, that in the West Coast, there was about 11 to 12 million, million slaves that left the West Coast. And they all came to places like Brazil and South America. And uh, uh, only, uh, uh, only wrecked. interestingly, they found out that only 5% of all the slaves that west, left the West Africa went to America. All the rest came down to South America. But we know where their progeny is today. We know where their descendants are. Look around South America. Look around Brazil. Look around the United States, and you will see. In the United States, we have over 30 million of their descendants living in the United States today. We can see them. They're still alive today. What we didn't know is that in the East Africa, there were also slaves being sold. In fact, even more than in the West Africa. There was almost 14, as many as some estimates may be as high as 20 million slaves were sold out of East Africa, out of places like Zanzibar, Lamo, you've heard these names before. These are slave islands. Where did all those slaves go to? They all went up not to the Western world, they all went up to the Arab world, to the Middle East. Yet where are their descendants? According to the statistics of the number of slaves that left East Africa, there should be anywhere from 80 to 100 million descendants living today in the Middle East. Where are they? They've just disappeared. Now, this is going to have huge repercussions. Muslims have not dealt with their slave problem. What happened to those millions upon millions of slaves that should be living today? We know where the West African slaves are. They're all living today. Their descendants are found all over North and South America. We can't find the East African slaves, their descendants. What's more, I ask my Muslim friends: you say that this is uniquely a Christian problem. Let me ask you: who abolished slavery? We're celebrating the 200th centennial of the abolition of slavery in 1807 by a man named Wilberforce. Wilberforce was a Christian, and he spent his whole life, spent his whole life trying to eradicate slavery because of his Christian principles. In 1807 was the first place, the first country, Britain was the first country to abolish slavery and other countries started following that. My country in America finally abolished slavery about 50 years later and other European countries started to follow suit. But who were the last countries to abolish slavery? They were all Muslim countries. Saudi Arabia only abolished slavery in 1960. Mauritania, the last remaining country to abolish slavery, a solidly Muslim country, only abolished it in 1981 less than, over, just about 25 years ago. Who's got the problem here? Christianity or Islam? I say, show me one abolition movement in Islam. There has never been an abolition movement. There has never been any movement to abolish slavery in Islam. It is uniquely a Christian enterprise. Even the missionaries in Africa created the, the country of Sierra Leone to take their, their freed slaves and put them there so they would not be re-enslaved today. Even today it still exists. Baroness Cox who lives not too far from me in London who she's part of the house of lords she goes down regularly down to north africa takes a film crew with her she goes to sudan and mauritania she goes to the slave houses there and she buys slaves on camera and then sets them free to prove that it still exists today it only exists in muslim lands And what's the tragedy is that in the United States, many Afro-Americans are becoming Muslims. because They believe that Islam does not have a problem with slavery, that this is uniquely a Christian problem. Can you see the lie that they're perpetrating? Look at the historical record. Look and ask, who were the ones that abolished slavery? Christians. Christianity and Christians abolished slavery. Why? Because in Galatians 3, it says very clearly, there is no difference between male and female, Jew or Gentile. Slave or free, all are equal in Christ. That's why we abolish slavery. The slaves are our brothers. Even when uh, Paul sent Philemon home as a slave, because he had to, under the jurisdiction that happened in the first century, when he sent him home to Philemon, what did he say? He said, no longer is he your slave, he is now your brother in Christ. He redefined slavery right there in one fell swoop. Thank God for what Paul saw as early as 2,000 years ago. He was way ahead of his time. Article four. What are the Muslims going to do with Article four? Article six Article seven I'm sorry, Article five. It says no cruel or degrading punishment. The Bible forbids it in Matthew five, thirty nine, in Matthew twenty six, fifty two, in Luke six, twenty seven and twenty eight, in First Corinthians thirteen, the love chapter. Look and see. We're not permitted to do it, yet look and see what Islam does. Islam allows for thieves to have their hands cut off, according to Surah 5, Ayah 37. It allows for unbelievers to have their heads cut off, according to Surah 47, Ayah 4. It says that those, that the, 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 those who stand against Islam must have their hands and feet cut off on opposite ends. What kind of punishment is that? That's barbaric, and yet that's exactly what we find in the Quran. I could go on and on and on with all the Islamic law, the inequality that's in Islamic law, built into Islamic law. We don't have time to do it today. Of course, they have to stand against Article 5. Article 7, Articles 8, and Articles 10 said that there's to be equality right across the board for men, women, for it doesn't matter what race, doesn't matter what creed, there must be equality. The Bible encourages, as I said earlier in Galatians 3, verse 28. Yet look and see what the Quran does with equality. It doesn't allow. Uh, non-Muslims to uh, participate in government it does not allow non-Muslims to participate in judiciary it allows no kufr to participate in the police force or in the the, military if you don't have any participation in the politics or the judiciary or the police or within the military you have basically eradicated any position of power it does not allow equality article 16 says that marriage and divorce must be equal the Bible mentions that a man may only have one wife. Shows that there's equality between men and women. Yet the Quran stipulates that a man may have up to four wives in Surah 4, Ayah 1. Although the prophet himself had up to 12 wives. He didn't even keep to his own jurisdiction. Article 18 said there must be freedom of thought and religion that men and women should be able to change their religion. The Bible allows it in John three sixteen 16 and Romans 10, verse 9 to 15. Yet the Quran stipulates that nobody can become, nobody can leave Islam. They give them three days to repent according to Islamic law and after three days if they have not repented they must execute them. No wonder they cannot sign up to our Article 18. Article 19, freedom of opinion and expression. The Bible says that there is no censorship, only that the only thing that must not be changed is the scripture and that we find that in Revelations 22. Yet, Islam does not allow criticism of the Quran or of the prophet. Those are the two taboos that are not permitted in Islam. The 295C law that is now instigated there in Pakistan stipulates that if anybody criticizes this book or criticizes the prophet, it's an executable offense. No wonder they can't sign up to Article 19. Article 4, Article 5, Article 7, Article 8, Article 10, Article 16, Article 18, Article 19, and Article 20. Nine articles which stand against Islam. No wonder the Muslims have a problem with the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Yet over 150 countries have now signed up to that article, to that declaration, excuse me. And all those articles are biblically based. Why is it that all these non-Christian countries will sign that declaration? Because they see something unique Something just, something universal. Can you see how universal our Bible is? Isn't it exciting? Sixty-six thousand people die every day. Seventy thousand people receive Christ every day. Evangelical Christianity is growing faster than even Islam. Islam has conversion growth. When it comes to conversion growth, Islam has about two, about two and a half percent conversion growth. Evangelical Christians have about 5% conversion growth. Proving that there's something about Christianity, there's something about the biblical truth that evangelicals adhere to that attracts even the non-believers. And this gets me excited. Now let's all wrap it up and let's see what we've said today. What we've said is this Bible is going to be challenged. And yes, it's going to be challenged. It's been challenged by many individuals. And all Ever since the Tubaigan schools started challenging in the late 1800s, it's been challenged. It will continue to be challenged, and rightly so, it needs to be challenged. Any scripture which claims to be the Word of God must be challenged. But it must be challenged accurately. It must be challenged on a historical account. It must be challenged by looking at the names, the dates, the places, and the events. And when we do that, the Bible stands up. Resurrect. In fact, it's the only book that can stand resolute. No other book can make the claim the Bible can make. Certainly not this book. I haven't even got into the, all the historical anachronisms of this book. I don't have time to do that. But the Bible has never, there has never been found one piece of evidence that shows that this book is incorrect historically. When we look at the archaeological evidence, it supports everything we know about what the Bible said. When we look at the manuscript evidence for the New Testament, just look at the myriad of examples of manuscripts we have. 26,000 manuscripts, 2,135 lectionaries, 19,000 translations in 11 different languages, 86,000 quotations, 36,000 which predate the 4th century. When you put them all together, they reproduce the entire New Testament, except for 11 verses, all before the Council of Nicaea, all before the Sinaiticus. Look what kind of authority we have for the New Testament. Look at the internal evidence. Look at the fact that it is all consistent, 1,500 years of revelation by over 30 different authors, yet they all say the same thing. No inconsistencies, no no contradictions. I have no problem believing that this is the Word of God. I don't ask you to believe it's the Word of God. All I ask you to believe is that it's accurate. When it deals with history, when it talks about people's names, places, and events, on that level, on that level at least, we can say it's accurate. If it's accurate on that level, then we can begin to open its pages and trust what it has to say. But what it has to say is what is quite a story. Starting from the very beginning in Genesis, from the creation of mankind, Adam and Eve, all the way to the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the way to the revelation on the very end, where we're heading on the other side of death. It's a great story. And it's a story that I can believe. Not just because we've done our homework by looking at the artifacts that the British stole and brought to the British Museum, the artifacts which support the book of Genesis, which support the 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and thank God for the book of Daniel. Not just because of that evidence, but because of who the person that it speaks about within its pages. It all points to one man, Jesus Christ. What a man. 300 prophecies that support and point to what he was going to do, where he's going to live, where he's going to be born, how he's going to die, between whom he's going to die, even where he's going to be born, uh, buried. Excuse me, and the fact that he was going to resurrect again. Thank God for the Bible. It gives me not only hope for the future, it gives me hope for all of you, but not just for all of you, also for my Muslim friends. We need to share the Bible with them, and we must never apologize. We don't need to apologize. There's too much that now has been done. Too much research that has been done. Yes, it's going to continue to be challenged, but it meets every challenge. I hope you feel confident for the Bible. I hope you use it, because it's better than any other piece of literature. It's what's going to save you. It's what's going to keep you directed, and it's what's going to introduce you to the God that is the God who comes down to earth and, yes, has relationship with us. That's a God I want to know, and this book tells you all about Him. It's a great book. Let's use it and let's share it.